It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Today's guest, Professor Love Varshney, leads the Information and Intelligence Group at the University of Illinois. The group is focused on augmenting individual and collective intelligence by understanding computation in various forms, social com computing, nanoscale information processing, neural computation, blockchain, and computational creativity. His research team focuses on science and engineering of informational systems involving humans and machines. Today we're going to talk with him about a number of topics related to artificial intelligence. Last month, Professor Varshney led a session on blockchain and the scientific method at the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences annual meeting in Washington. The chief scientist for Inceris Incorporated, he and the company began working with the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago to develop a solution to odor complaints near their reservoir system. Using AI, Professor Varshney and his team wanted to predict uh, when there would be an odor problem three days in advance of the actual issue. In 2017, Professor Varshney and his team of researchers received a $50,000 Siebel Energy Initiative seed grant to develop their project, Incentives, Choices, and Analytics for Electric Vehicle Fleets in, joining, in Jointly Managing Urban Traffic and Smart Grid. Professor Varshney, welcome to the program. Great, thanks for having me. So an extensive introduction, but I wanted to give people um, a, a sort of a, an idea of the breadth of things that you did. And let's start with the, with the blockchain, uh, your session uh, a few weeks ago in Washington. First of all, briefly describe for people who maybe aren't as familiar with blockchain, what it is and why it's so important. Sure, so blockchain is a new technology in some sense, but it's been actually around for about 10 years now. It originally was developed uh, in the context of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. And now it's being used in a variety of other settings, including science, which I'll describe. But um, the way we want to think about, uh, about blockchain is, is it's a distributed ledger technology. It's a way of creating trust among uh, parties that don't necessarily trust each other. And it uh, is based on cryptographic principles, but you don't really need to worry about that to really understand what's, what's happening. The, the way to really think about it is whenever you have transactions among people um, in a society, you want to keep track of it. You want a ledger of all these transactions so you could always go back and, and uh, check what happened. And the, the nice property of blockchain systems is that there's a way to um, uh, have a, an immutable ledger. So once something is written in the ledger, you can't change it. Uh, there's no way to go back and uh, mess it up. And that provides a lot of trust. And further, everyone keeps a copy of the ledger, and so um, uh, and and there's a consensus. So everyone has uh, an identical copy of the ledger, and so everyone can trust each other that everyone agrees about what happened in the past, and then proceed for the future. So it provides a really um, extra level of security um, that you wouldn't have in in spreading information or transactions or whatever uh, you know across electronic means. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, yeah, it need not be just restricted to electronic means. I mean, uh, it's, it's a general trust technology. And in fact, one of the settings we've been thinking about uh, applying blockchain uh, in collaboration with some folks in the College of Agriculture here is uh, for uh, small scale uh, landholders to be able to aggregate their land 
in a way that uh, they can farm it together and then uh, split the profits from that. Um, so even in kind of the most rural of uh, remote regions, you can uh, use blockchain technologies perhaps to enhance agricultural productivity by helping people trust each other. So why uh, is it important in scientific research these days? Sure. So uh, let me just back up a little bit and talk about how science is done. Um, maybe three, two or three thousand years ago, the way science was done was uh, individual uh, researchers, say in ancient Greece or in ancient India, they would exchange letters with each other. Uh, they would describe what they've accomplished and maybe not all the details, but they kind of trusted each other because there were so few scientists uh, around. And they just wrote to each other, they told everyone what they did, and, and that was that. Um, but that wasn't very scalable. Um, you can't just write to, uh, to 10,000 of your peers, let's say. Um, if there's only five of them, that's fine. Um, so about four or 500 years ago, um, scientific societies really started to come into prominence and they started publishing journals. And the way journals work these days is, and, and since then, is that there is a peer review process. And so uh, we, all of us as scientists, we do our research, we write up our results, um, which has kind of an introduction, um, a description of how we did the research, the methods and our conclusions. And we, uh, those are reviewed by our peers. And if it passes peer review, then uh, our, our results are published. And in experimental um, parts of science, um, the data itself is often uh, published as well. And so that again has been um, uh, now the way science has been done for, for many years, uh, the last several centuries. But now the, we have these new technologies of, uh, of distributed trust and distributed, distributed ledgers, these blockchain systems. And so we're starting to ask, um, can these actually disrupt the way science is done? Can it make science better? And there's a variety of things that are pushing us to think about this. One of the key crises in science these days has been uh, reproducibility, uh, whether in the behavioral sciences where it kind of arose first, but also in, in other settings that um, there's uh, phenomena like uh, hypothesizing after the result is already known. So if you want statistically sound scientific research, you have to set out your hypotheses and your um, the things you are testing in advance, and then only then um, uh, test them. If you do it in the opposite order, that's actually very bad because in large data sets like we collect today, you can find nearly anything that you look for uh, after the fact. And so you, if you had a distributed ledger, you could uh, prefix what it is that you're exploring and then uh, and the specific questions and then gather data and then test it. Um, so that's one aspect of why distributed ledger technologies, these, these trust technologies might help. And in fact, it even helps scientists ourselves. Uh, we're, we're humans like anyone else. And so we might uh, just kind of not realize uh, that our in various incentives are pushing us to violate the kind of standard procedures. Um, we see something interesting and, and we just want to kind of go with it. And obviously, making sure that people have the proper credit um, is important. And then being able to collaborate uh, and really see detailed um, uh, things of, of your results um, across um, your with your peers, and uh, I think it's important as well. Yeah, in fact, credit is the other aspect of this. Um, so these days, papers are, I suppose, the currency of scientific uh, of the scientific realm. Let's say. But uh, now in, in modern science, uh, there's a lot more people who are participating in, in the scientific process and um, papers don't capture their contributions. 
there's people who are writing computer code um, that are used for analyses that are unconnected to their original motivations. Other people are collecting data that are, um, again, analyzed in different ways uh, later on. And if there were, uh, there was a mechanism by which credit could flow down to everyone who contributed to the scientific investigation, it would encourage uh, people to contribute to, to the whole process, not just to, to the end part. And I think blockchain provides a way to do that because you can audit uh, what went into everything and then uh, allocate credit backwards. Uh, moreover, um, uh, the way science is currently done is very much um, at the level of uh, writing whole papers. But uh, different people have different skills. Some people are good at coming up with questions, making conjectures. Other people are good at collecting data. Others are good at uh, kind of theorizing and, and putting it together in, a, in the scientific framework. And so perhaps there's a way to deconstruct the scientific paper and have different people contribute different things. Um, so kind of break up the, the unit of, uh, of analysis. So instead of having a big long list of people that contributed, you will know exactly how they contributed. Yeah, that's right. But also um, you could have people in completely different parts of the world, someone coming up with an idea, someone else collecting data and so on. And it need not be collected into a single paper. It's the, the individual contributions that, uh, that drive science forward. And perhaps this can be done more quickly. So in kind of in transitioning, tell, tell us, uh, I mean, this was a, it's a big uh, component of your research lab. Um, how does it fit in with the other things that you are working on? Yeah, so um, we've been working on um, these questions around blockchain, but also actually the foundations of blockchain. Um, as you may know, uh, in cryptocurrencies, uh, the system is actually very, very inefficient. Um, it's very energy inefficient. So um, Bitcoin uses more energy than Denmark, I, I believe, uh, these days. Um, and it requires memory storage uh, at every node to be very, very large. And it uses a lot of uh, communication and computation resources. So we're looking at the foundations from an information theory perspective and asking, can we make the system much more efficient? And in fact, we've come up with ways uh, that uh, you can do that. And one of the key reasons is because in, in a lot of applications of blockchain, you don't need um, to have anonymity nor permission uh, uh, permissionless properties. Um, so if you know who's participating, you don't need very complicated uh, consensus protocols, and that helps a lot. And further, we have ways of using uh, um, distributed uh, storage codes to essentially split up information and only store it in, in certain places so, you don't, uh, so everyone doesn't have to store everything. So the idea in cryptocurrency, though, is that there is this an anonymity. Uh, that was one of the incentives, I think, maybe from its uh, when it was produced. But, we, but in this case, you don't need that layer. That's right. Um, in fact, the whole premise of, uh, of uh, science, uh, I mean, not the whole premise, but uh, one of the, the things in science is you do want to give credit. So anonymity is not a thing, right? Everyone is, should, uh, you should know who everyone is. And one of the other application areas of blockchain we've been working on in my group recently is for food safety. Um, so right now, when um, there's, say, an E. coli um, uh, contamination event uh, for lettuce uh, in the U.S., it requires kind of recalling all the lettuce uh, throughout the country. And again, that's incredibly wasteful. And so um, one might ask, so if we could uh, put every kind of movement of food in the full food supply chain on the blockchain, um, could we trace back the specific sources of contamination 
And so then we would only need to recall, say, the lettuce uh, in that uh, specific uh, supply chain rather than all the lettuce in, in the country. And that's something we've been working on. We've been working jointly with folks from IBM and, and Walmart and this consortium that's really building up the technology. And we've been developing algorithms that sit on top of that that allow us to figure out the sources of uh, contamination. That would probably require uh, from farmers from the very beginning getting on board with this so you know exactly where it came from, exactly where it trans, you know, how it was transported to where and, and, and that sort of thing. So everybody has to be on board, I think, for that method to, to really work. Yeah, that's right. So all the way from agriculture, all the way to um, grocery stores. So um, from the fields to the trucks, to the, um, uh, to the packaging centers, to the distribution centers, to the grocery stores, to the consumer. So uh, throughout the whole food supply chain, um, one would want to put these transactions on, on the blockchain. And um, uh, yeah, the, the consortium that Walmart and IBM are leading, they have sufficient market power that they can encourage this uh, both forward and backward. Well, you say the, uh, the waste and, and the money saved from this has got to be tremendous. Yeah, yeah, it should be a f pretty huge impact, not just uh, in terms of waste and money, but even from a public health perspective. Uh, as you may know, um, worldwide, uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of people actually die from foodborne illness. So we're just now uh, scratching the surface, really, of the uses of blockchain because you're, you're expanding beyond cryptocurrency. And now we've just talked about a couple of other um, applications. You know, do you see this exploding? Yeah, I think this is a really exciting technology. Um, some of our colleagues here at Illinois are working on all kinds of other applications as well. And uh, I think the future, um, especially once we can make it uh, efficient in terms of energy and latency and throughput and all these things, it can be really powerful. So, you know, information transfer, we've talked about uh, transferring information using DNA. Is this uh, another application where they can, can both be used? Um, yeah, I've never heard of uh, kind of DNA and uh, blockchain used together. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, we'll have to see if, uh, <laughs> if that makes sense. All right, let's get to some of the other things you've worked on because we mentioned uh, in the open there uh, the uh, applications for artificial intelligence from wastewater perspective and certainly other um, municipal uh, utilities. You know, how is that developing? Yeah, so artificial intelligence is, in addition to blockchain, these are two of the most exciting technologies there are. In fact, both of them have the possibility of being general purpose technologies like uh, computing or the internet or electricity. Um, so yeah, it, it's kind of an er exciting time for, for, for us. Um, in terms of uh, applications of artificial intelligence to wastewater management, um, I've been working with a startup here um, called Enceris uh, here in Champaign. And we've been working on a variety of problems. Um, we did some work with the US Army um, where we were trying to optimize uh, water classification uh, for their remote operating bases. So if you're out in the middle of Afghanistan, for example, uh, you don't want to truck in water and truck out wastewater. I mean, you, you would need to have a protected convoy and you don't want to take those risks. So if you could reuse water um, at the base, that would be really nice. And uh, to do that, you need to have a way to measure whether it's safe for reuse or safe for drinking or uh, various things, safe for discharge. And so we built, um, but you don't have laboratory facilities out in these remote operating bases. And so we built machine learning models, artificial intelligence algorithms that could, uh, despite having noisy and uh, um, kind of surrogate uh, sensors, we could 
um, predict whether the uh, the water wastewater is, is safe or, or not. And so um, that was really a nice project. Um, and in fact, some of these same technologies can perhaps be used in, uh, in a variety of uh, wastewater uh, processing uh, facilities he here in the US. So places like uh, Danville or Rantoul uh, or even uh, the Ur Champaign-Urbana uh, Urbana Champaign Sanitary District. Um, but uh, so we've been exploring some of those possibilities. Um, and then we got connected to the uh, to the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago, which uh, actually runs the world's largest uh, wastewater treatment plant. Um, and uh, we're we're talking to them about some of these ideas of uh, of uh, sensing and optimization of their plant operations. But uh, we also did this problem. Uh, we worked on this problem that was of uh, kind of pressing interest for them uh, this past summer, which was uh, odor complaints. So uh, as you might imagine, sewage and, and wastewater, it, it might give off kind of a bad odor. And um, uh, Chicago has embarked on one of these large, incredibly huge engineering projects. Um, I guess 100 years ago, they were well known for reversing the flow of the Chicago River, perhaps one of the greatest engineering projects of all time. And now they're building an incredibly huge reservoir system to kind of hold uh, excess rainwater and excess uh, wastewater um, when, when the need arises. Well, and, and, I, and looking at this project uh, from a bigger perspective, it's um, separating uh, sewage water from rainwater um, because obviously when floods happen, um, all this is mixed and, and that causes a lot of problems. So being able to keep those separate, having a large enough reservoirs such that the rainwater and the sewage water rarely uh, mix certainly is a is a is a big undertaking yeah for sure so these are huge huge um, engineering projects and one piece of that that we were looking at was uh, trying to figure out if we can predict when uh, these bad odor events might happen um, yeah in these neighborhoods where these reservoirs are people often get headaches or um, complaints they might not go to school um, if, if it's smelling really bad uh, out in the air. And so if there was a way to predict and then act upon those predictions uh, several days in advance, that would be really powerful. And so what we did again was develop artificial intelligence technologies uh, jointly with, uh, with folks from uh, the University of, Chicago, uh, University of Illinois at Chicago, as well as uh, researchers at the MWRD to be able to do exactly that. And the interesting thing there is we're not just trying to predict um, the weather um, three days in advance, which is al al already a tough problem, but also kind of the, the generation of these bad odors, um, the spreading of these bad odors, so the wind and the um, air temperature impact that. And then also people, um, whether they're uh, sufficiently annoyed or inconvenienced that they would call and complain. So there's uh, kind of the chemistry of the, the wastewater, the, um, the uh, weather and the spreading process, and then the human psychology. So all of those uh, things come together in, in trying to predict this, this kind of uh, phenomena. So to back up a little bit, because you mentioned um, not even the need to test uh, the water in, in, in Afghanistan. It seems like uh, it, as you think about that, um, maybe, con you know, contradicting to what you would think would be important to do, but having an algorithm that can almost guarantee or predict um, the safeness of the water, that seems to be, a, you know, a really big deal, especially in, in remote areas. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, these algorithms are, are really powerful. Um, they can yeah, uh, figure out if treatment is needed, optimize the treatment, um, deal with some of the um, malodorous uh, pro um, impacts of, of these treatment processes, uh, all kinds of things. So um, the third kind of topic that I, we want to address is uh, the transportation. You know, I think I, there was a recent article um, in Forbes that talked about um, having uh, we have autonomous vehicles can kind of predict traffic flow and whether parking is needed and things like that. So talk, just talk about in general where this is happening and then uh, or, you know, how things are changing and then uh, s maybe address uh, the project that we referenced uh, from a couple of years ago. Sure. Um, yeah, so electric vehicles are a pretty neat technology as well. Um, I'm not a, a hardcore electrical engineer. I don't do power systems myself, but uh, a lot of my colleagues here in the department do. And so it's been fun talking to them and figuring out kind of how electric vehicles can play a role in, in modern transportation. And in particular, we've been thinking about it in the context of ride sharing and car sharing services like Lyft and Uber. Um, so if, uh, if these uh, services had electric fleets, um, how might they um, play into things? So could, uh, could they not only contribute to transportation, like you would imagine, but also to the smart grid? So these are actually batteries on wheels in a way. And so you could think about bringing them to charging stations when you need them to support the grid, um, to um, reduce the need for uh, turning on the coal power plants or, or other um, kind of uh, unsustainable sources of energy um, as, as you need it. So um, it's kind of a neat idea that um, you can take kind of crowdsourcing, but in a physical sense. So you have uh, social um, kind of uh, objectives playing together with these uh, platforms uh, like Uber and Lyft and the, uh, the, uh, the smart grid kind of all um, optimized together. Okay, so you received this grant uh, two years ago, about two years ago, in 2017. How, how has the project gone? Um, are you close to, to getting some results? Yeah, so uh, we've been working with my colleagues, uh, Tamir Bashar and, and Subhan Meshbos and, and our students, uh, and we actually do have some nice results. So we have ways of uh, pricing uh, transportation services and these grid services um, in the context of, of the sharing economy, such that uh, we actually can reduce um, the need for, um, for uh, either um, kind of regular taxi services or, or these uh, coal-powered um, uh, power plants. So in general, using artificial intelligence this way um, could really revamp the transportation system. I know that in Chicago, for instance, they are really leery about the number of Ubers and Lyfts and you know, other ride-sharing that are on there, you know, maybe trying to limit those. Can you come up through artificial intelligence a way that everybody can coexist and, and really um, impact traffic from a positive standpoint? Yeah, so um, we haven't used a lot of artificial intelligence yet in, in this problem. We've been more uh, using game theory, so understanding people's incentives and balancing them through pricing mechanisms. But if we could also incorporate artificial intelligence to understand and predict the nature of traffic flow, I think we could do even better. Um, I think the central question is how to reduce congestion um, from the traffic perspective, yet provide everyone with the tra transportation services they need. And then on the flip side, um, for 
for energy, we want to be able to provide energy as everyone needs, but also take advantage of solar, solar and wind, which are less predictable than uh, other sources of energy. So if we could also use artificial intelligence to predict uh, the sun and the wind together with the traffic patterns, then we can um, try to uh, use AI to uh, come up with even better policies. So how do you get a seat at the table? Because obviously these things are very political. Um, and, and yet it seems to me like artificial intelligence and the capabilities should have a, a, a really a significant seat at the table when uh, public policy people are, are trying to figure out what, what they want to do for, for, from the future. Yeah, so um, I think in terms of regulatory policy, um, I think there's some things that one can work on. Um, even as academics, I think we're, we're able to talk to some, in, some folks in, in government and in industry to push some of the benefits of these ideas. And um, I think broadly, in fact, AI and social good are very connected. Um, there's a lot of interest these days in, in applying artificial intelligence techniques to solve a, a host of uh, problems in society, um, whether it's uh, water or transportation or energy, but also even things at, at a more fundamental societal level like fairness and accountability and preserving human autonomy. So what role does the University of Illinois play in all this? To, uh, I'll give you a chance to brag a little bit about your team and then you know, the things that, that we uh, here at Illinois like to talk about is all the uh, interdisciplinary and the collaborations that happen because of, you know, of the high ranking departments that we have here. So just talk about the, the environment that you're working in here at Illinois and how you feel like Illinois can be a leader in, in, in this area. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing to be at, at this place. I mean, there's so many incredible people. Um, yeah, my own department of electrical and computer engineering is, is among the best in the world. So it's great to have so many uh, incredible colleagues. But also uh, throughout the university, um, we've been working with some folks in civil engineering, which is also pretty amazing, and folks in industrial engineering and all, um, and so and computer science. So it's, it's really, really great. Um, and in terms of taking our findings out into the world, not just uh, keeping them in the ivory tower, I think uh, the fact that we are the flagship of the state, I think we were able to, to tr um, translate some of the ideas we have um, out. So whether it's working with startups like I work with Anseris, or um, I've done some projects with a variety of not-for-profits uh, using uh, artificial intelligence technologies to uh, make human-computer interaction more efficient and, and crowdsourcing more impactful, or um, working with large company partners as well, like uh, like the IBMs and the Walmarts of the world. So there's a variety of ways we're able to, to leverage our research, not just for academic interest, but also to make an impact, uh, a positive impact, I, I hope at least, uh, in, in the world. Well, I don't wanna put you on the spot here, but we always like to end with what's next. How soon can these technologies uh, be you know, implemented? Uh, what, uh, when will society see the benefit um, and how from artificial intelligence, you know, how quickly and, and that sort of thing. Any predictions from, from your end about how things are shaping up, what, what we could see maybe next in the next two or five years or whatever, and what might be down the road? 
Yeah, so I think with bo both blockchain and um, and artificial intelligence, I think they're here. Um, I think there's going to be there's already many applications that are being deployed in a variety of industries, whether it's agriculture or transportation or food or um, or wastewater. Um, and going forward, I think this will just increase. Um, I think the combination of human and machine creativity. Um, our, our joint uh, intelligence can be incredibly powerful, uh, more so than e either of them individually. And so when we get um, to understanding how best to have humans and machines work together, we'll be able to, to just make our society so much better. All right, La Varshney has been our guest. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we look forward. I know we covered a, a wide range of topics here, but I thought that uh, um, it really uh, reflects the breadth of things that you're working on come back and talk to us and uh, you know keep us informed of things that are happening in your lab great sounds good and i'm yeah looking forward to to catching up again all right uh mike coon your host thank you for joining us for another edition of illinois innovators illinois innovators is a production of engineering at illinois all rights reserved we invite you to subscribe to the podcast through itunes or soundcloud by searching engineering at illinois we hope you'll help grow our core of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes.